finishing our series in Matthew 24 this morning. And uh, as you're turning there, let me just kind of give you a little review of what we've seen so far. In the book of Matthew, one of the big themes is that Jesus is the king. And so Matthew is presenting him as the king, and he's highlighting the response of the people, particularly the Jewish people typified by their leaders, the religious leaders, and the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus, leading up to this chapter, has been giving warnings of coming judgment. There is judgment coming, and it's going to fall on all of those who are rejecting him. And the disciples have some questions. Jesus has left the temple area. He's come across onto the Mount of Olives. He's with the disciples there. They have two questions for him. One, when will these things be? All of this judgment that you're talking about, when is this going to happen? And the second question is, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so Jesus is answering those two questions in Matthew chapter 24. And one of the big answers that he gives when they ask, when are these things going to be? He says, all of this is going to take place before this generation is gone. And so it's very much a kind of near horizon focus here. And he talks about the great tribulation, this horrible time of suffering that is coming. And we've seen even from history, what Josephus tells us and other historians, how exactly what Jesus said happened. All that he foretold came to pass. And it climaxes with AD 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. So when Jesus says here in AD 30, this generation isn't going to pass away until these things take place. That's 40 years. And 40 years biblically is a generation. Now today, in Matthew 24, we're going to see specifically the sign of the Son of Man. And we're going to talk about what that sign is, and it's going to take us a little bit of kind of digging in to understand it. But uh, this is going to be probably kind of the capstone, the key that ties together everything that we've seen in Matthew 24. Now, because I was sick last week, this, mess, this series is now one message shorter than I intended. So we're going to start with verses 32 to 51. The main focus today is going to be 29 to 31, particularly verse 30. But I don't want to just let this pass without comment. So I'm going to read, starting in verse 29, down to the end of the chapter. Then I'm going to comment on verses 32 to 51. And I'll just read and comment, read and comment, very briefly before we jump into those three main verses we're going to look at today. So let's start with Matthew chapter 24, verse 29. And these are the verses we're going to focus most of our time on today. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a tr loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now those are the verses we're going to focus on today, but let's go on and just kind of comment briefly on the rest. Verse 32. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away 
until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Okay, so first in verses 32 to 35 here, Jesus uses the illustration of the fig tree. When the leaves appear, springtime, summer is near, it's coming. In the same way, he says, when you see all the signs that I've been talking about, you know that the Son of Man is near. He's about to come in judgment. And then in verse 34, that very important statement about the timing of all of this, this generation will not, take, will not pass away until all these things take place. So Jesus is saying, all of this is going to happen within 40 years. And all of these things do happen. His words will not pass away. They can be counted on. They're a sure thing. Verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect." So in these verses, Jesus emphasizes that while all of these signs he's been talking about will come first, they should still be ready at any moment. The Father has a plan and a timetable, and no one else knows it. Jesus, in his humanity, doesn't even know it. He isn't giving them a calendar date, but it will be within the generation. So don't slip into complacency. Don't fail to heed the warnings like the people in Noah's day. Judgment will be swift, and you don't want to be swept away in judgment. Okay? In Noah's day, all the people are there. Noah and his family, they know the judgment's coming. They get in the ark, and when the judgment comes, everyone is swept away. Everyone is taken away, and the only ones left behind are Noah and his family. In the same way, unlike the novels, you want to be left behind. Okay? You don't want to be swept away in judgment. You want to escape the judgment, Jesus says, so be ready. And he's telling the disciples this is going to happen before this generation is gone. Now verses 45 to 51. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus finishes here, verses 45 to 51, with a parable about using the time wisely until Jesus comes. It seems here that Jesus, if some people read this as Jesus beginning to transition away from talking about 
what's coming in this generation and into the second coming at the end of time when the final judgment occurs. Don't have time to get into that this morning, but I'll just say this. Either way, the point is that his people should use the time they're given wisely. There's a day of accountability coming. So live with the future in mind. All right. That's all I'm going to say about those verses. So now go back with me to verses 29 to 31. All right. Verses 29 to 31. And Matthew 24, 29 says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So what does immediately mean? Well, it means immediately, right away. After the tribulation of those days, this will happen. Remember, the tribulation here is the time of suffering and difficulty in Jerusalem and Judea, particularly in the final years leading up to AD 70. It's local. Jesus says you can escape it by fleeing on foot to the mountains. It's not some worldwide tribulation. It's a tribulation that happens right there. The Jewish war against Rome from 67 to 70 AD, resulted in extreme suffering in Jerusalem. We've talked about that in past messages. But then Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, what will happen? Well, what he describes here in this verse sounds like the world is coming to an end. The sun and the moon go dark. The stars fall out of the heavens. But we need to realize this is standard Jewish apocalyptic language. It's not the first time this has been said. This language comes from the Old Testament. So first, remember, right off the bat in Genesis 1, God says that this is part of why he created the heavenly bodies. He created the sun, moon, and stars and said, let them be for signs and seasons. Not only that, he associates them with ruling. They, the greater light rules the day, the lesser light rules the night. So right off the bat, those heavenly bodies are associated with ruling. So the fact that Jewish apocalyptic language associates the rulers of this world with the sun, moon, and stars makes sense. That's picking up God's language right in the creation. So it should be no surprise that when God judges particular nations, he often describes it in the language of what we'll call cosmic deconstruction. The universe falling apart, the world coming to an end, the sun, moon, and stars failing, going dark, falling out of the sky. Their world is apparently coming to an end. Isaiah 13, Isaiah prophesies, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and the const their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Okay, that's the same language that we're hearing Jesus use. Well, what is Isaiah talking about? He's not talking about something in the future. He's talking about God's judgment on Babylon in his day. And it happened. Did the sun, moon, and stars actually go dark? No, of course not. 
but it's the language of cosmic deconstruction, the world falling apart. That's how significant and complete God's judgment on Babylon was. Or how about Ezekiel 32? Ezekiel prophesies this. He says, when I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. What is Ezekiel prophesying about? Is he prophesying about some future day? He's prophesying about God's judgment on Egypt. And it happened. Did the sun, moon, and stars actually stop giving their light? No, of course not. Again, it's the language of cosmic deconstruction, the world falling apart. And if you were in Egypt, if you're an Egyptian, that's what it would have seemed like. Your entire world is coming to a crashing end. That's how significant and complete God's judgment on Egypt was. You can see the same kind of language in Isaiah 34, speaking about God's judgment on Edom. Or in Amos chapter 8, God's judgment on Samaria. It's standard apocalyptic language. This language is used to speak of earthly powers, nations, and their leaders. And when their lights go out, it's God's judgment. It's the end of that earthly power. So what does Jesus mean when he uses this language here in Matthew 24? Well, what has Jesus been pronouncing God's judgment against? The rulers and leaders of Israel. The temple, the whole system of Judaism that has rejected their Messiah. This is the climax of the judgment against Jerusalem and the temple. Jesus says there's great tribulation coming. That's 67 to 70 AD, the Jewish war, the suffering in Jerusalem. And immediately after that tribulation, the whole Jewish system and nation is coming to a crashing end. Jesus says here in verse 29, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Here we need to think of the book of Hebrews. So turn with me for a minute. Hold your place in Matthew 24, but turn to Hebrews chapter 12. While you're turning there, the message of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. He's superior. It's written to Christians who are tempted to go back to Judaism. They're suffering persecution, they're facing opposition, and they're tempted to go back to what seems like the safety of the Jewish system. Going back to the temple, back to the sacrifices, back to the ceremonial law. And the author is telling them, no, Jesus is superior. Jesus is better. So, in Hebrews 12, if you were looking at verses 18 through 24, the author says that the new covenant is superior. He says, you've come to Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai. It's not the terrifying sight of God's majesty and holiness on Sinai. It's now the joy and freedom of the new covenant at Zion that, that Jesus has brought. And then the warning comes, starting in verse 25. So look with me at Hebrews 12. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, 
I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Okay, so God is going to shake the heavens. Just like Jesus said in Matthew 24, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So what is it that can be shaken and what can't be shaken? What is removed and what remains? Look at verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful, us Christians, for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We Christians have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That is the kingdom of Christ. Jesus preached the good news of the kingdom, the kingdom that cannot be shaken. And Jesus is the king. The previous kingdom, Old Testament Israel, the kingdom of Israel, was about to be shaken. Okay, look at verse 27 again. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, the things that have been made. In order that the things that cannot be shaken, the kingdom of Christ, may remain. So Hebrews is written during that overlap of the ages that we've talked about. The old age, the old kingdom, is winding down to its destruction. And the new age of the Messiah, Jesus' kingdom, is growing and spreading. That's what Jesus means when he talks about the sun, moon, and stars failing, the powers of the heavens shaken. It's the rulers of Israel falling under God's judgment and the kingdom of Israel coming to a crashing end as seen in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Let's go back to Matthew 24 now and look at verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So Jesus says that at the same time, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear. Now, in, under, in order to understand this, we have to get technical for a minute. We have to talk about grammar. So if you're not a grammar person, I apologize. I'll try to keep it simple and brief, all right? According to your English translation, what will appear? Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. So give me a little feedback this morning. What's going to appear? The sign, right? Okay. The sign of the Son of Man. And according to your English translation, where will it appear? In heaven. Okay, that's what it seems to be saying. The phrase in heaven in your English translation seems to be answering the question of where the sign will appear. But the older translations like the King James or the Geneva Bible say it this way. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Do you see the difference? Now in that version, what does the phrase in heaven describe? It could still be describing where the sign appears, but it could just as well and even more likely be describing 
where the Son of Man is, the Son of Man in heaven. So what does the Greek say? Well, the Greek, literally, the phrase is in this order, the second one. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And the way Greek gets translated, it could legitimately be translated either way. But the phrase in heaven sits next to the Son of Man. Now, I think our modern translations, while giving it's a legitimately possible translation, they're overlooking the most obvious translation. And they're reading their interpretation back into the text. They're trying to be clear, but it's their it's, the, it's their interpretation of the text and their end times view that is determining how they're translating it. Okay? And the translation is made in a particular way that supports that interpretation. But I don't think that's what it's really saying. Now, hold that thought because I'm going to show you in a few minutes where Jesus gets this language. And this question, I think, becomes even more clear when we go back to the Old Testament. But why is all of this important? Why am I bothering with this? Because we're talking about two very different things. Are we looking for a sign in the sky? Or are we looking for a sign that Jesus, the Son of Man, is now in heaven? You can probably tell where I'm going with this. When Jesus ascends into heaven, what does he do? He takes the throne. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's ruling and reigning. And the sign that the Son of Man is now in heaven on the throne is what Jesus is prophesying. When you see this, the things that Jesus is prophesying, you'll know that Jesus is in heaven on the throne executing judgment. Specifically then, the sign is exactly what Jesus has been saying. When you see Jerusalem invaded and the temple destroyed, you'll know that the Son of Man is on the throne in heaven. When you see the sun, moon, and stars falling, the religious leaders of Israel, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the priests, killed or defeated, you'll know that the Son of Man is on the throne in heaven. When you see the whole Jewish religious system fail, the temple torn down, never to be rebuilt, the sacrifices coming to a final end, you'll know that the Son of Man is on the throne in heaven because he's the one executing this judgment. That's the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Okay. Then Jesus says, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Okay? When this happens, now, when that sign appears, when Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Okay? Here we have to give another translation note. The word earth is often, and just as easily, translated land. Okay? It, when we think earth, we tend to think planet earth. That's not what this word means. It means earth like dirt, okay? Like you till up the earth or, a, so it's, it's the, the land, the earth, or a specific plot of land. That's what the word means, okay? So here it means the land of Israel, 
And we can see this because it speaks specifically of the tribes. Who's going to mourn? The tribes. Matthew uses the same word in Matthew 19, verse 28, when Jesus tells the disciples they'll sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, so when Matthew uses that word tribes, he's already using it of the tribes of Israel. So it's speaking specifically of the tribes of the land of Israel. And that fits perfectly with what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 24. When the sign of the Son of Man in heaven appears, when Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed, who will mourn? The tribes of the land, the people of Israel, because the whole Jewish system is coming under the judgment of Jesus. Now, we need to see where Jesus gets this language. I mentioned that a minute ago. So go with me in the Old Testament to Daniel chapter 7. This is the only other place I'm going to have you turn this morning. But turn back to Daniel 7. I want you to see this with your own eyes. Daniel 7. Okay, the language that Jesus uses here when he says, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. It comes from Daniel 7. We looked at the visions and prophecies of Daniel briefly a couple weeks ago, and I'm not going to go over all of that again, but I do want to talk about Daniel 7 and what, have us understand what the vision of Daniel 7 is about. So let me introduce it, and then we'll read these verses. In Daniel 7, Daniel has a vision of four beasts coming up out of the sea. And the four beasts, just like the vision in chapter 2, the four beasts are four kingdoms, four kings that represent four kingdoms. And it's the four kingdoms from Daniel's day until Jesus' day. It's, we've got the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire. And then there's a special focus on the Roman Empire in Daniel 7 with the 10 particular rulers that are part of the Roman Empire. And there's details that fit perfectly with all that we're talking about. We just don't have time to go into it this morning. And then Daniel sees the Ancient of Days. And here's where I want to pick it up. Look with me at Daniel 7, verse 9. As I looked, Daniel writes, Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time." And now, okay, so the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father on his throne. And now we come to the Son of Man. Daniel 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. Okay, do you hear Jesus' words there? Coming on the clouds of heaven, the Son of Man. Okay, And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So you have 
the succession of four kingdoms that all get wiped out, then you have a kingdom that comes that will never be destroyed. It's eternal. It's permanent. And it's the Son of Man who is given the kingdom. He will rule the kingdom. And the Son of Man comes on the clouds, where? To the Ancient of Days. Picture the Ancient of Days on his throne in heaven, and the Son of Man comes on the clouds to the heavenly throne and takes his place there. That's what we should have in mind when we hear what Jesus is saying. Okay? The Son of Man is Jesus. That was even Jesus' favorite title for himself. Now, when in the New Testament do we see Jesus coming to the throne of God the Father and being given authority and dominion? When do we see that? After the resurrection, Jesus says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Then he ascends into heaven. Acts 1 tells us he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Mark 16 tells us Jesus was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. When you put all that together, you have exactly what Daniel 7 is talking about. Jesus, the Son of Man, ascended with the clouds of heaven to the Father, the Ancient of Days. He was given authority and dominion, a kingdom, and he was seated on the throne at the right hand of God the Father. So when Jesus uses the phrase, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, he's referencing this vision from Daniel 7. And this is why it is the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Rather than being just a sign that appears in the sky, it's the sign that the Son of Man is in heaven, on the throne. He's now executing judgment. And that judgment becomes visible on earth in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. That's the sign. He's saying that what Daniel was prophesying is about to be fulfilled. When? Immediately after the tribulation of those days. A.D. 70. Look at the interpretation in Daniel 7, if you're still there. Verses 15 to 18. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints, catch this, the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. So when the Son of Man is given the kingdom, his people, the saints, receive the kingdom. That's the church. The kingdom of Israel comes to an end. The kingdom of Jesus grows and spreads. Or, as we saw Jesus say to the religious leaders a few weeks ago in Matthew 21, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Again, this is that overlap of the ages. The Jewish age is coming to a violent end in A.D. 70, while the age of Messiah is growing and spreading. 
And it's important that we realize here that means Jesus is already on the throne. He is right now ruling and reigning in his kingdom. And his kingdom is growing. In the language of Daniel 2, remember the vision of the, 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 the statue that's made of four different materials and the, the stone that's not cut out with hands comes and destroys the statue? Okay, in that language, it's like the stone that demolished the statue and is now becoming a mountain that will fill the whole earth. Or, like Jesus said, it's like yeast in a lump of dough, slowly spreading and expanding over time. Or, in another of Jesus' parables, it's like a mustard seed. It's a tiny seed that becomes this great big plant. The kingdom seems small, insignificant, weak. I mean, look around you, right? But it's growing, expanding until one day it will fill the whole earth. And there's one more aspect of this phrase that Jesus uses that we need to understand as well. When Jesus says that the Son of Man is coming on the clouds, he's not just picking up the language of Daniel. It's also language used throughout the Old Testament for God's arrival in judgment. It has to do with his power and authority, his rule and reign, his judgment. God's presence when he comes to set things right. The night before his crucifixion, as Jesus was before the Jewish council, the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Messiah, the, the Son of God. What did Jesus say to him? You have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man. From now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You see what Jesus is saying? He will take his rightful place on the throne and he will execute judgment seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Seated, authority, and coming, judgment. Authority and judgment. And if you're wondering, but it says that they will see him. I would just suggest to you that this is seeing as in understanding or realizing. In fact, not a minute ago, I asked you, do you see what Jesus is saying? And you knew exactly what I meant. When Jesus says they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds, he means that they will come to understand or realize his arrival in judgment. They will realize it because they will personally experience it. They will see it. In Isaiah 19, Isaiah is giving this judgment oracle against Egypt. And verse 1 says, An oracle concerning Egypt... Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. As the Israelites left Egypt, the cloud signified God's presence. The cloud came to rest over the mercy seat, which is the place of God's judgment against sin. God coming in the clouds is a coming. It's his royal presence, his arrival for judgment. Joel 2, speaking of the coming day of the Lord, we read, 
Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Okay, the day of the Lord is coming. It's a day of clouds. And by the way, the fulfillment of this passage is in Acts chapter 2, right after Jesus ascends in the clouds to take the throne at the right hand of God the Father, Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit on his people. And Peter says, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. It's a day of judgment and gloom for Israel because it signifies the transition to the kingdom of Jesus. It comes with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. But it's a day of blessing for God's people because he's pouring out his spirit. There are lots of other places that we could look to see God's presence signified, particularly when he comes in judgment, by the clouds. Not only the clouds, but the very idea of his coming. God's omnipresent, right? He's everywhere. He doesn't need to travel. And yet he often communicates about himself in that kind of language. When the Bible speaks of his coming, it speaks of his royal presence. It's the arrival of the king in order to act, to pass judgment. Sometimes that's in deliverance of his people. Sometimes that's judging a nation. Sometimes it's both at the same time. Genesis 11, Tower of Babel, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. And what was the result? God's judgment on them. Or Genesis 18, at Sodom and Gomorrah, the Lord says, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see. What was the result? God's judgment on them. And remember, the language of Sodom and Gomorrah is used in Matthew 24, as Jesus describes the arrival of that judgment. Exodus chapter 3 in Egypt, God says, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. And what was the result? God's judgment on Egypt and at the same time, deliverance for his people. And again, we could turn many other places and see similar language of God's coming, his arrival, his royal presence to pass judgment and to act accordingly. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying when he speaks of the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Having ascended into heaven to take his throne, he will come in judgment on Israel. And the result will be the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the end of the Jewish age. Now, very briefly, verse 31, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. We mentioned back near the beginning of this series that the word angels here just simply means messengers. It's a generic word. It can be used of heavenly beings like angels. It can be used of pastors. It can be used of messengers. And here, Jesus' messengers will go out and spread the good news of the kingdom in order to gather his elect from all over the world. And the word gather here is the same word that Jesus used at the end of chapter 23 where he wept over Jerusalem and he said, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. 
Israel was not willing to be gathered to her Messiah. Instead, they rejected him. So now the kingdom will be given to Jesus' people, the church, who will be gathered from all over the world, not just Israel. Who are the messengers? Well, it begins with the disciples. After the resurrection, Jesus tells them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And that task gets passed on to each subsequent generation, right down to our day, and it includes us. Now, I want to give you three ideas to think about as you reflect on this passage this morning. And each of these takes what Jesus is saying in Matthew 24 and helps us to understand what difference this makes in our lives today. The first is the sovereignty of God over history. The vision given to Daniel exactly foretold what would happen on the world stage. The four empires that would succeed each other and right on schedule, the kingdom of Jesus broke into this world. God is sovereign over human history. That should give each one of us confidence. There's nothing that surprises him, nothing that escapes his notice. Everything that happens in your life happens under the umbrella of God's sovereignty. And his kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, is the greatest kingdom of all. God is sovereign over human history. The second thing, and this is where I want to take a little more time, the scope of Jesus' lordship. What are the limits of Jesus' lordship or authority? Where does he not reign? Several things to keep in mind here. First of all, remember the stone in Daniel's vision in Daniel 2. After it destroyed the statue, the kingdoms of the world, it grew to be a mountain that filled the whole earth. The whole earth. That's the scope of Jesus' lordship. Right now, as we have gathered for worship this morning, Jesus' kingdom is growing, and one day it will fill the whole earth. Second, remember Jesus' words, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority has been given, past tense. Jesus rightfully holds all authority now. There is no other power on earth that does not answer to him. Every single throne, every presidency, every mayor, every governor, every sheriff, they are all accountable to King Jesus. Third, think about what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection. After Jesus' return and the resurrection, Paul writes, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus is ruling and reigning right now, putting all his enemies under his feet the stone is growing into a mountain. The lump of dough is rising. The kingdom of Jesus is growing. The mustard tree, it's growing. The growth may not look like what you would expect. Sometimes the kingdom grows in a, 
a, a flourishing culture that embodies Christian principles like New England Puritanism. But sometimes it grows through persecution like modern day China. But the kingdom is growing in God's timing. One way that you and I tend to limit the scope of Jesus' lordship is by limiting it to our personal or private lives. You may remember in the past, we've talked about the two-story model of truth that our culture often operates under. And the concept of this illustration comes from Francis Schaeffer and then Nancy Piercy. In the upper story, or the private part of our lives, we have things like religious belief and moral values. They're private and subjective, important for us, but not something we can legitimately expect others to adopt. In the lower story, or the public part of our lives, ground level, street level, where we interact with other people, we have things like science and facts. They're public and objective, things that must be agreed on by everyone, things that are authoritative for everyone. And if you want to operate out in the public square, you must adopt these things. This is not the biblical model of truth. We've often been content to keep our Christian faith upstairs. But what Jesus says in Matthew reveals the fatal flaw in that kind of thinking. Jesus holds all authority. As Abraham Kuyper said, there's not one square inch of this world over which Jesus does not say, mine. Government belongs to Jesus. It's accountable to operate according to his principles. Law belongs to Jesus. It's accountable to operate according to his law. Education belongs to Jesus. It's accountable to operate according to his truth. Medicine belongs to Jesus. It's accountable to operate according to his principles. Science belongs to Jesus. It's accountable to operate according to his truth. Public policy belongs to Jesus. It's accountable to operate according to his law. Your decision about masks belongs to Jesus. Your decision about vaccines belongs to Jesus. How you raise your kids belongs to Jesus. Your church attendance belongs to Jesus. Your gender identity belongs to Jesus. Everything belongs to Jesus. The scope of his lordship, everything, all of it. Daniel's vision showed that the stone becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. The mustard seed grows into a great plant. The yeast leavens the whole lump of dough. Paul said that Jesus reigns until he puts all his enemies under his feet. In other words, Jesus wins. There is no doubt. If you belong to Jesus, you are on the winning side. And here's why that's important. When you consider the enemies of Christ that we face, when we see the cultural battles that take place today, when we see people walking away from the faith, when we see governments imposing policies that are opposed to Christ, we need to remember they can't win and we can't lose. We may be called to live in times where we are persecuted even unto death, 
But as Paul said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. They can't win, and we can't lose. In the mid-1500s in England, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley came under fire by the Queen because they opposed her, they proclaimed the Reformation truths of the gospel and of salvation by God's grace. And on October 16, 1555, on this spot, this cross in the bricks, outside of Balliol College in Oxford, Latimer and Ridley were executed. They were tied to a stake and executed by being burned alive. But despite the role that they were called to play, they never doubted the ultimate victory of Christ. As they went to the stake, Latimer said to Ridley, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as shall never be put out. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we consider these words from Matthew 24, I pray that every one of us sees the all-important truth that you are Lord of all. You said before your death and resurrection that, that you would execute judgment on Jerusalem and the temple, and it happened exactly as you said. You are on the throne. Your kingdom is growing. I pray that you would give us confidence in that truth. I pray that you would help us to understand that every area of our lives is under your lordship and that the certainty of this victory would give us the confidence and the faith that we need to live in this world today. May we be faithful followers of the ultimate King and Lord of all, King Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.